church, once again, good morning. I have to tell you, uh, the theme of today has very much been, and rightfully so, just a, a day of celebration, a day of reflection and consideration of the fact that our God has shown himself not only faithful, but he has provided for us. He's provided for us this new and, um, for the first time in a number of years, a permanent place of worship. This is the first time I'm preaching indoors in two and a half years, so that's kind of a, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, for 22 years, you, you've heard the story, kind of already shared a little bit. We have... Um, anticipated this day and this place. We've been praying for it, planning for it, working towards this. And for those of you who have been here for any extended period of time, you've been on this journey with us, and some of you are probably feeling like we're feeling, finally, <laughs> finally. It's, it's, I think it's kind of humorous that this weekend is Labor Day weekend, the day that we celebrate uh, the, the work that we have, and then Tomorrow you get a day of rest. People have said, are you excited about the opening of the worship center? And I said, I absolutely am, but I'm also kind of like, I'm ready to rest. I'm ready to, you know, there's been so much going into it. And, uh, and so here we are today celebrating what God has done and, and the end of the journey. But I thought a lot about and talked with the elders a lot about just this day and what God would have for us, want to hear um, for us this morning. You know, this building... And this campus, um, while God has provided it for us and why we celebrate God's provision today, that the truth is that this building and the campus, it does not change in any way, shape, or form who we are and what we're about. It is a testimony to God's faithfulness and his provision, but, but these buildings and these resources, ultimately, they don't change who and what we're about. Last week, I said it. For those of you that were here, I said, our place of worship may change, but our purpose, our mission remains the same. I mean, that's one of the great grounding truths for us as a church, that it didn't matter if we were worshiping in a theater, in a small chapel, in a backyard, in a tent, or in a new worship center. <laughs> that's been our history over the last number of years. No matter where we worship, no matter where we are, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, if we have been made the people of God in and through Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter where we worship or where we move to or where we're living, our purpose remains the same. And so today what we're going to consider is exactly what that purpose is and why it is our purpose. You see, we here believe at Valley Center Community Church that God's word proclaims to us that our purpose is simple and our purpose is clear. Our reason for existence in the world is very simply this. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That no matter where we live, no matter where we worship, this is the call to your life and to my life in and through Jesus Christ. This is why we're here on this spinning orb we know as planet Earth, to glorify God. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, I get that conceptually, or at least I understand the words to some extent. But you know what we mean when we say that we exist to, to glorify God? I think one of the best illustrations to describe this is that we are telescopes and we are not microscopes. You know, 
Both telescopes and microscopes do the exact same thing. They magnify things. They both magnify, but they magnify different things. A microscope takes something that is small and makes it what? Big. A telescope, what does it do? It takes that thing that is large and that is big, but seems small and brings it into right proportion. It begins to take that large thing, that, that big thing, that to us, because of its distance or, or because of our relationship to it, is small, and it makes it to your eyes and to my eyes its actual right size. And so when we talk about that we as a church, as the people of God, exist to glorify God, I'm telling you, you're a telescope. Your purpose and my purpose in this world is to come and make the grandeur and the glory, the attributes and the character of God known, to put them on display, to reveal exactly how big, how awesome, and how wonderful our God is. I heard one author one time say it this way, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this, feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Feel, think, and act in such a way that the world will see how great our God really is. And so what we're about as a church is that wanting our hearts to know this morning, wanting the world to know how great our God actually is. That's why we exist. Peter would say it this way, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so we celebrate God's provision today, but in this season, it's so important for us to remember, why are we here? What is all of this about? It is to make much of our God. And we believe that when you study the scriptures, what you learn is this. When you and I truly see God for who he is, for what he has actually done, what it does is it orders our lives. It's where we find hope. It's where we find joy. It's where we find peace because we are fulfilling our very purpose. I, like, I don't say that lightly. When I say that we exist, uh, that our purpose in this world is to glorify God, if that is our purpose, and it is, you're not going to find hope, you're not going to find joy, and you're not going to find peace outside of it. I love the theologian, a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. But I want you to, to look at what he said. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life in it is a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. But he goes on and he says this. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what, your, what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Anybody here want to waste their life? <laughs> Anybody here want to lose their soul? J.I. Packer comes to us because he's just telling us what God's word already says. When you know God for who he is, for what he has done... There you find your purpose, there you find your hope, there you find your joy. And because I don't think that any person here wants to fall into that category of wasting their life and losing their soul, today we're going to continue what we began last week, and that is to consider together who our God is. So with a little bit of a rambling introduction, are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? All right, we're going to go right to it. The best place for us to start as a church, to come alongside as the people of God, to know our God is where the Bible begins. Anybody know what book the Bible starts off with? 
Genesis. All right, here we go. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Easiest book in the Bible to find. If you don't have a Bible this morning or you don't have an electronic device, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. They're underneath in a basket. We'd love for you to have that. If you don't have a Bible, please take it as our gift to you. Bring it back. Use it. Study it. When we come to the very first words in the scriptures, here's what we discover. They say something very simple and yet profound. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that a new statement to anybody here today? Some of you might not even raise your hand if that was true. Most of us know this. Most of us have heard this and know that this is the very first verse within the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian or a very religious person, you have an idea that Christians believe that there is a God who exists and he created everything. Like, like that's when we come to Genesis 1.1. It's not, it's not a very complex verse. If you were to just take it at face value, it's coming to us and it's saying two things. There is a God, doesn't try to prove his existence. The Bible just starts with the fact that, you know, there's, there's a God and he created everything. That's what it says at least at first blush. But I think what we need to do with a verse like this is what Sherlock Holmes did when he was talking to Dr. Watson one time. They were trying to solve a, a crime, and they came into a room, and he asked Dr. Watson, what is it that you see? And, and Dr. Watson just made the obvious observations about what was in the room and what he saw. And then Sherlock Holmes went off, and he said, that's all that you see? See, you don't observe, Dr. Watson. There's more to it than this. And he went off and he rambled about all the things that were in that room that Dr. Watson had, had missed. You see, there is a lot happening in Genesis 1-1 that tells us a lot about who our God is. It says more to us than we might first think. Now, my dad has a saying. He told it to us all growing up. He says, it's good to know what the Bible says. It's better to know what it means. Now, we're going to get to what this all means, but first, let's see. Do we really understand what it's saying? L look at the verse again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's, let's do the Dr. Watson for a minute. Let's, let's actually observe and not just simply see. If you listen to this verse, if you hear it, it's actually saying a number of things. The first thing that it's saying is that there is a being who exists outside of time and space as we know it. And he exists outside of time and space since he created it. If it says that God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of that, that gives us our frame of reference. That gives us our understanding of time. And so we have a being here who exists outside of time and space as we know it because he brought it into being. There was a time when time, as we know it, did not exist. And there is a being who does exist and is so powerful, so powerful that he could bring everything we know into existence. When we read, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, this is actually what that verse is saying to us. I mean, take it in. This is the description of your God, but it also tells us one thing about you and I, at least one thing. It says one thing about us. You know what it says about us? It says, because... We are part of what God brought into existence. You and I are created beings. We're created things. We're not things that came to exist on our own. You and I were part of a creation that this God intended to be made. 
I know very few inventors who invent something who don't have intentionality behind the thing that they're actually looking to create. And so it is true with our God. If you're taking notes this morning, if you want to know who our God is, at least who our God reveals himself to be in the very first pages of the scripture, it's this. Our God is the creator of everyone and everything. I would venture to say that that statement didn't shock anyone this morning. At least that's what the Bible says. But what did I just say? That's what the Bible says. But what does it mean? That's what we're going to get to. Now, I'm fighting everything within me to get right now to what it actually means. That the God of this book is the creator of everyone and everything. We're going to look at just a minute at what it means, but, but I want to do something for us that I hope, number one, will challenge some of you here today, and number two, will encourage the rest of you. So I don't know which one you're going to be. You're either going to be challenged or encouraged, or you're not going to feel anything, but I think it's going to happen, all right? Because some of you here might have this question, and if you do, it's a valid question to have. The question is this, Dave, the Bible says there's a God and he created everyone and everything, but why should I believe what God's word says, right? Like, that should be a fair question. If you're not thinking that question, some of you here today are like, oh, Dave, silly boy. God says it, I believe it. Like, I just take what God's word says and I believe it. And if that's you, I love you for that. I love that you're just like, it's good for me. I don't need anything more. If God says it, I believe he says it, so, so I accept it. But you know that there's probably somebody in your life, or there might even be a season of your life, where, where that doesn't suffice, where you and I need a little bit more to, to go on. And did you know, I'm going to show you something. Did you know that God's word actually says, at least when it comes to the existence of God and the fact that he's creator, that you just don't have to accept it based upon the fact that he says it? Do you know that for those of you who might struggle in your hearts and minds and wonder, like, can I really believe what the Bible says about this? God's word actually says you're not being rational and you're not being thoughtful unless you actually explore the answer to that question. God's word actually comes to us in Romans chapter 1 and it challenges us and it says, that's fine. If, if you don't believe it just upon the fact that I say it, that's okay. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at how it challenges us in this. Romans chapter 1 comes and it says these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." Look at this. Actually, leave it up there for a minute. Look at this, this at Romans chapter 1 again. Look at what it says. For what can be what? Known about God is plain. See, Genesis 1 and other passages say that God is the creator of everyone and everything. Romans says, yes, God exists, but just don't take my word for it. Look at the creation itself. There are two things, namely his eternal power, and his divine nature are on display in the things that have been created. If you doubt the existence of God, if you doubt that he's a creator, God's word invites you to just test the theory. Look at creation itself and look for, if you can see, examples of eternal power and divine nature on display. 
Did you know that that's in the Bible? That it challenges you and it challenges me and says, explore it. Look into it for yourself. And here's the crazy thing. I can only give you two things this morning. We could spend a lot more time on this. Do we see examples of God's power and his nature or his character on display in creation? Well, in my office, there's this thing. I've shown you some of this before, but since we learned last week that half of you haven't been here very long, I'm going to bring it back out again. (laughs) This right here, does anybody know the name of this? I've told you in the past. It's called Newton's Cradle. Uh, And I love when people walk into my office. I've told you guys this in the past. I know you're a personality type by what you do when you see this. But Newton's Cradle, it demonstrates a lot of things. I use it to show the cause and effect of things. These metallic balls, they just stand here and they, and they hover. They will not move unless I come and move them, right? And when I do this, you guys all love this, don't you? You know, you've seen this before, right? When the one ball strikes the other ball, it moves these balls, and so there's this energy force that flows through, and it makes these ultimately move. But when this is sitting on my desk, unless some little child or an adult that acts like a child comes into my office... <laughs> They won't move. They need a cause from outside of themselves to get them going. Did you know that scientists are pretty much in 100% agreement, at least as much as scientists can be, not religious scientists, not just scientists, that when we look at our universe It is a universe made up of contingent entities, things that are caused by other things. All the scientists who's worth their weight come and they say, listen, when we look at the facts of our universe, there was a time when our universe did not exist. It was brought into existence. Everything in our universe is caused by something else. Now, what do most scientists say started the universe? Anybody know? The Big Bang, right? And I always hear that, and I'm like, I'll give you the Big Bang, because you're at least acknowledging that the universe had a beginning point. There's a problem with the Big Bang. Anybody know what it is? What caused the Big Bang? And so scientists say, well, whatever caused the Big Bang can't be something that we find in nature, because everything we find in nature is caused by something else. So something outside of nature, as you and I know it, had to bring our universe into existence. Something that would be super natural. Now that doesn't get you to the, to the God of the Bible. But some ancient dude by the name of Paul, 2,000 years ago, inspired by God, said that if you take the time to seriously look at the creation, God's eternal power should be displayed. And today we have scientists united on the truth that our universe came into existence by something outside of our universe. So the Bible comes and says, challenge it. You want to know the existence of God? Think rationally, think logically. We have an example that our universe was caused by something outside of the universe. 2,000 years ago, Paul says, you should see evidence of God's power What are we looking at when we see that? But then it also says you should see evidence, and there's other illustrations I can go to, but I want to hit on his divine nature. When we talk about God's divine nature, there should be a character or a quality, something about our God 
that should be manifested in the creation itself. Like when we talk about God's divine nature, we're, we're talking about his character and his attributes. And the rest of the Bible says that, that, our, that our God created the world and he created right and he created wrong. And, and so, so the first evidence that we have for God as creator is the fact that the universe has a starting point caused by something outside of the universe. Like that's the first evidence, right? The universe has a starting point caused by something outside the universe. That shows us his eternal power. But what about his divine nature? Every single human being, no matter who you are, no matter what society you exist in, has said something like this. No one deserves to be treated like that. That person should be punished. People should not act that way. That person has every right to do with their, his or her body whatever they please. No matter who you are, no matter what society you exist in, every human being, regardless of society, has what we call moral feelings. This idea that some things are right and some things are wrong. We all experience it. Even the littlest kids who are never even, even necessarily taught these things. We, we feel things when somebody does something to us that ought not to be done. When we see people doing things that ought not to be done, we, we feel it, we experience it, and we say that's not right. And it's not just that we have moral feelings, we also believe in something called moral obligations. I'm not going to pick anybody out by name because I don't want you to be part of the illustration. But, but if somebody in this room were to say, like, you know what, um, I believe that to be a white supremacist is correct and that it is okay to burn black churches, we would come and we would say, um, I don't care how you feel about that, <laughs> all right, um, that's just something that ought not to be done. There's something more than just simply how you feel. There's this, there's this moral obligation. If an old lady is being beat up, you would go and you would say, stop that, you shouldn't do that, that is, that is wrong. We believe in morality, and so I say this, when you look at creation, we should see evidences that our God has a divine nature and he's passed it on to us, and what I say to that is all humans have a moral compass. Every single one of you here in this room, every single human being that exists has an idea of right and wrong. Where does that come from? And what I say is, it can't just be dictated by what the majority thinks. In fact, in order for me to ultimately say that something is right or something is wrong, I have to appeal to a standard higher than myself. You have to appeal to a standard. And what is that standard? We believe it to be none other than the God of this book. And we feel that way and we have those thoughts because his divine nature is on display. Genesis doesn't come and try and prove the existence of God. It just says there's a God and he exists. Later on, Romans comes and says there's a God, he exists, he's the creator of all things and you should believe it, not just simply because the Bible says it, because God has made it plainly evident to us. Church, this is our God, the creator of everyone and everything. But now we come to what really matters. What does this really mean? What does it really mean for us as a church to be gathered this morning in this place to know that there is a God who's the creator of everyone and everything? I'm so glad you're asking that question right now because we're going to find out. <laughs> it first and foremost means this. Here's what this means and here's why this actually matters. For you and I to know our God as the creator of everyone and everything. Here's what this means and here's why this matters. No one and no thing therefore compares to God. If he's the creator of everyone and everything, and he is, 
then you and I must know that out of everything else in creation, nothing compares to him. Now, I'm going to get to why that fully matters in a minute. But we must embrace this truth and see it for what it is. There is a God. He is our creator. And because he's the creator, nothing can compare to him. In fact, this is what God said through the prophet Isaiah is where your mind and my mind should go. Look at Isaiah 40, starting in verse 25. Listen, listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. To whom then will you compare me? This is God asking Israel the question. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. See what, God? See who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Down in verse 28, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What does God do here? He says, when you understand me to be the creator, it leads you to only one conclusion. No one compares with me. No one compares with me. When he asks, to whom shall you compare me? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. What's bigger? What's more supreme than him? Nothing. We're his creation. He is the creator. Everything is created. And he is therefore above all things. God's coming and saying to you and to me this morning, to be the creator of everyone and everything, it means that I am supreme. And if I am supreme, then nothing outside of me deserves worship. See, if there's another creator, if there's another being on equal par with God, then we have a battle. But the Bible does not present that there are a multitude of gods. It says that there is only one who is over all. And we started our service or right before the message with this scripture reading from David when King David wanted to make the point to the people of God as he was looking to offer up for the dedication of the temple a prayer, he said this in Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. You're blessed forever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above it all. What is God exalted above all? Everything. See, according to David, who should receive the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty? Who, who receives it? Oh, go ahead. You can say it out loud. Who? God. Think about that. Who receives the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory and majesty? God. And according to those verses, how much greatness, how much power, how much majesty, how much praise does God deserve? Oh, let's try it all together now. How much does he deserve? All. How much is left for you? None. How much is left for anything else in creation? 
None. None. When I say that God is the creator, David is saying what that means is nothing compares to him. And, and, and so here's why this matters, church. Here's why this matters. No one and no thing can come before God. This is what it ultimately means. If he's the creator in your life, in my life, if all power, if all majesty, if all glory, if all praise, if all victory belongs to God, then nothing can come before him. In your life, in my life, he is before everything else. If someone or something takes preeminence in your life over God, you're wasting your strength, you're wasting your praise, and you're wasting your glory. C.S. Lewis, I just love how sometimes this guy breaks things down so simply. He said this, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Did you hear him? Let me just say it one more time, just so we're all on the same page. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Do you know him as the creator? Remember how I said that's familiar? I doubted any single one of you didn't know that the Bible teaches that. But do you know what it means for you? What it means for me? We say that our purpose in life, that we exist to glorify God, to be telescopes that make the grandeur and the power and the majesty of God known. We look to magnify him. And the answer, what drives us, just one of the things that drives us is this truth. Because I'm a creation. I'm not a creator. He deserves it all. All my praise, all my glory. But there's one final thing that I just want us to see what it means for us. It means if he is the creator of everything and everyone, we and everything else belong to God. It's not just that God is so great that nothing compares to him. For him to be our creator means that we belong to him. Psalm 24, 1 through 2 says it this way. This is, this is where God's word goes. The earth is the, is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Anybody here dwell therein? Anybody here dwelling therein, the earth? That's you, that's me. And why does he own us? Why do we belong to him? Well, he tells us, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is the creator of everyone and everything. And so your life and my life is not my own. No matter who you think you are, no matter how independent you think you are, as a created thing, you belong to God. Now, that could seem to you either to be a bad thing or a great thing. Because if you belong to God, if he is your creator, then it means that he has a purpose in your life. God doesn't make mistakes when he creates. In fact, God's word goes on to say in Genesis that we were made in his image. Do you see yourself as belonging to this incomparable God. The scriptures say we should. Isaiah 43, 1 says this, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, I have called you by name, 
you belong to somebody else. Is that what he says? <laughs> I have called you by name. You are what? Mine. Just as the writer of a song, an inventor of an invention, just as they have ownership of their creation, God's word comes to you and says, so too, God has ownership of you. That's why David said in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, all that is in the heavens is yours. Because he's the creator, it's not just that you belong to him. Guess what else belongs to him? Everything else. Everything in your life, everything in my life, I'm not an owner of. I'm only a steward because it's his. And the things that I have in my life and the things that you have in your life, if they really belong to him, then they are ultimately, are they to be used for the ends that I see fit? Or are they to be used, as David has already told us, to make much of him? You see, what this means for us, church, is this. If we're the creation and he's the creator, and if we belong to him, the final thing I want us to understand is this. We are to live under his rule. To call God our creator is not just to simply say, oh, he made things. It's to say that he's incomparable. It's to say that we belong to him. And it's to say that you and I were created to be underneath his reign and his rule. Look at what David said in verse 11 again of 1 Chronicles 29. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. The kingdom is yours. Our lives are yours. You are the rightful ruler of us. And so when we consider this, when I said in the very beginning <laughs> that our place of worship may change, but our mission remains the same, it remains the same because there was never a time and there will never be a time in which God is not our creator. There was not a time and there will never be a time in which there is anyone or anything that compares to him. There was not a time and there will not be a time in which he is not the rightful ruler of your life and my life. We exist to make much of him because this is our God. And for us as a church, as J.I. Packer said in the beginning, when you and I understand who our God is, when our eyes are fixed on him, when we have that right perspective, it frames everything else. If you're living for something or someone other than the Lord, if you've made your life about him, J.I. Packer, he's not, you know, he wasn't making it up. That's a wasted life at minimum, and at the most, you can lose your soul. And so as we gather in this place and we celebrate what God has done in his faithfulness and his provision, we also come and we celebrate and we remember this is who our God is. He is our creator. And our life, your life and mine, finds hope and peace and joy when we live in and live for this God. If you were to pause with me right now and you were to say, Dave, I get this about my God. I, I get that this is who he is. 
if I were to ask you to rewind your week, here's where the challenging thing comes in. Has your life and my life always accurately reflected that he has the right to rule? Does your life and my life reflect that it's about making much of him and not making much of us? Every single one of us in this room, if we're being honest with ourselves, would say, nope. My life isn't always a reflection. I'm not always acting as a telescope. If anything, I'm more of a, of a magnifying glass. I'm more of a microscope. I'm making the small things seem big. I'm making the small things appear glorious rather than continually putting on display the glory and the majesty of who God is. You know, if we're being really truthful, apart from something happening to every single one of us, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you now know what that means? When the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what it's saying is, when you live your life as a microscope and not a telescope to make much of God, that means that you're sinning because you are not making much of the one thing and the only thing that is incomparable, and you're not living under his reign and his rule. And all of our lives, to some degree, are a testimony to the fact that while these things are true, we don't always live it. But thanks be to God that he's the kind of king who knows this about those who he has created, who understands that our lives on a day-to-day basis have not always reflected that. And so if you're here today, one of the truths that we want to proclaim is that there was one, Jesus Christ who is the king who came down to rescue and redeem. The only way that you and I are able to actually live for the glory of God, to live under his reign and rule, is to know that there was a savior sent who takes those who fail to live for God's glory and makes us those who glorify him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Jesus Christ. For those of you here today who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, who have heard this message, and maybe your heart's been captivated and you said, you know what, I need to get back on track. I need to to put aside those things I've been magnifying other than Jesus Christ, other than God my Father. For those of you that are, are hearing the message and receiving it like that, know that in and through Jesus Christ, you have the ability to live a life that brings glory to God because in and through Jesus Christ, grace has been given to you. And so as you hear this message and you might think, you know, Dave, I haven't lived up to this recently. I come to you and I say, there's still hope. There's still means for you to ultimately fulfill what God has called you to be, to live this way. Because when you see God for who he is, you see that you can live for him because Jesus Christ has poured his grace on you. For others of you here today, I don't want you to waste one more day living for something other than the God that you were created to live for. And the only way that you can live for him, the only way that you can have a life that's not wasted and a soul that's not lost is through Jesus Christ. And you know how easy it is? When grace comes into you, you're able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to profess him as Lord and Savior, and redemption and restoration happens. And so here's what I want to ask us to do as a church. Would you bow with me right now? I want you to bow in this place. And let us come before the Lord, and in light of this message, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to to come before the Lord. And maybe right now, there needs to be just a moment of confession to him to say, Lord, 
I haven't been embracing and I haven't been taking in you for who you are. That this reality that you are the creator who is incomparable, whose reign and rule I am to live under, that Lord, there's an area in my life or maybe multiple areas where I haven't been living in that way. Confess that to the Lord. Know that today he hears your prayers. His grace is sufficient. Forgiveness is found in that you can go forward in the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and to be able to live as one who's that telescope to the rest of the world. And for any here in this room today, maybe you just need to simply pray, Lord, I admit that I have not come under your reign and under your rule. I have lived as though I was the creator of everything. Lord, I confess to you today that I need to throw that idea off that I've not walked in your ways, that I've not entrusted myself to you, and I do that now, in and through your son, Jesus Christ, who saves and who redeems and who makes me his own. And so, Lord, hear the prayers of us, your people, knowing that in and through Jesus Christ, Lord, you allow us to approach your throne, that you're a king that doesn't keep us away, but draws us in by grace and mercy through Christ, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.